Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And I'm Eric Lures. It is March 1st, 2018, and on this week's show, the Oscars are finally upon us. Sony and Canon get serious about affordable 4K, Netflix's mind-blowing announcement, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Hello, everybody from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So I would love to spend this entire show talking about Black Panther, which I saw again last weekend, but I'm getting a bunch of no, no, no nods in the booth. And so I'm going to jump into another story, but still Wakanda forever. If you've already been to see Black Panther and now you're thinking about not leaving the house for the rest of the year, you're in luck. We had already reported that Netflix was spending a whopping $8 billion on original content this year. And now we know a little bit more about where all that money is going. Netflix CFO David Wells spoke at the Morgan Stanley Technology Media and Telecom Conference this week, where he announced that the company plans to release 700 original movies and TV shows this year. Now, this sounds like a shit ton of content, and that's because it is. Let me put it in context. So FX Network CEO John Landgraf has been doing a regular report on the rapid rise of TV production, and just last month, he shared his findings from 2017. So last year... 487 scripted original series aired across all platforms. This was the largest number of scripted series ever, topping 2016, which had 455 series. So to drive the point home, there were less than 500 original series everywhere last year, and that broke records. All online services combined last year did 117 original productions. This year, Netflix alone has 700 So this number also includes original movies, and I should mention that 80 of the original productions are non-English shows from outside the U.S., so this doesn't just apply to our American listeners. Like Dark. Well, hopefully Dark 2 is coming out soon. It's German. Yeah. So what does apply to almost all of you is that although Netflix wasn't a big buyer at Sundance, as we talked about last month, some of these new titles are definitely coming from fully independent filmmakers. Take, for example, our own Ryan Koo. Hey, Ryan. His film Amateur will be premiering on Netflix this spring. Or my fellow film Fatala, Olivia Newman, whose film First Match will premiere at South by Southwest this month and then on Netflix on March 30th. What we don't know is how much money is being spent on indie films, what the commissions or deals look like, and ultimately how much indie filmmakers are benefiting financially from having their films on the platform. I'm also curious about whether Netflix will promote indie titles with the same gusto that they promote bigger budget productions. So we will definitely keep our eyes on this throughout the year and report what we find out. Yeah, I I do think it's interesting how for a lot of independent filmmakers, uh, at least over the past few years, when they would get a when they would make a deal with Netflix, it was seen as a really and it still is a very huge opportunity for them. Uh, With all of these extra 700 titles coming in, though, you kind of wonder how does one production stand out over another? Obviously, Netflix is going to have to do their part to promote. So, I mean, not equally exactly. We don't know if, um, say, First Match will get the same amount of promotion as the latest Cloverfield film. But you kind of wonder on a Friday as 7 to 10 to 15 new titles are coming out from Netflix, uh, how are they going to show up in your queue? That's always something I found interesting where Uh, If I know a friend who may have a doc premiering on Netflix on that Friday, I'll go to my queue, and if I had not heard of the film, how many clicks and steps do I have to take until it actually shows up for me? So do I have to go to Netflix already looking for it, or are they going to really target it towards who I am and my viewing habits? It's always like, how do you stand above that pack? Well, it seems like they're going to start promoting their own stuff above everything else, so I'd say that... Uh, you'd have a pretty good chance of seeing it up there if uh, it is like a kind of hyped indie production even. For me at least, all of this sort of new and noteworthy section or whatever on Netflix is always now new like original content. It's not, I'm not seeing any of like the movies that have been produced outside of Netflix and I think that's a pretty big part of their strategy is to put the movies that they've made or they've financed in some way 
on uh, the the forefront. But I think you're right. I guess one advantage this platform has for <clears throat> titles that might not get as much push otherwise is that it is targeted and they have all the algorithms and user data. So they might not put the kind of money that they put behind a Cloverfield Super Bowl ad behind every, I mean, they definitely won't put that behind every title, but they will be able to find your audiences and push the content toward them. So if you're already an indie film lover, you you know you're gonna like see these indie titles i wonder whether mainstream film lovers that may be interested in the type of content that's in indie films but not necessarily be seeking it out will sort of be served up the the indie titles as well one feature that i really like that netflix has implemented i think last year was instead of the whole like rating system that the viewer rating system that they used to have now they just have thumbs up thumbs down and it just makes it so much easier uh to like understand how that algorithm works so it's like if you actually see something in a genre or a financial pyramid that you like press the thumbs up button mm-hmm. and then you'll start seeing more of those films on your recommended film list or whatever all i know is we're just two weeks away from the latest benji movie premiering on netflix so i don't know if that'll be recommended to me but i will seek that out specifically on march the 16th you can always use search too. No, don't even bother. That's I just pretty, I need to see pictures. I need to click like on images at all times. Fail safe way. It's it takes like, about you know ten seconds. It's like Twilight Zone or Benji on my Netflix. But actually, that's you know that is really interesting. I mean, this is a whole kind of other discussion. But early in my career, I started giving this these um, workshops and lectures about building buzz around your film, and it was much harder then because there wasn't as much social media. There wasn't as many ways to get the word out there and you really had to hustle and it's funny because in a way we're coming all the way back around to where even if you get a deal on a platform as prominent as Netflix you as the filmmaker are going to have a lot of responsibility if you really want to get eyeballs on that film towards promoting it through your own you know network social media that kind of thing it's not like you just hand it over to Netflix and it's done yeah and, and I wonder too not to belabor the point but if filmmakers still retain uh, theatrical rights if that's even still an option anymore or if that's just kind of not on the table and forget that part because in days past if you did have your uh, digital release in place you'd probably try to get a little press that would come with a theatrical release that would then springboard off and lead to that as well but I'm not sure about that now so you all have been getting to know Eric Lures on the podcast for the past couple months, and you've probably come to realize that he is our in-house Oscars expert, and he may be too humble to say so. So I'm just going to share. Oh, I wasn't going to be too humble, but please, you all, you uh, no, but, but please, today. no, Did please, I blow do up it, your please. spot. No, go for it. I love it. Well, I'm very proud to announce that here in the No Film School podcast booth, we have among 27 teams the winner mm-hmm. of Oscar Trivia Night. It, let me tell you, it was huge. Uh, as always, know your best song clips. Uh, the Prince of Egypt won best song in 1998. Don't forget, that always comes in handy. Uh, speeches that they gave out the ceremony, know your clips, know your audio, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we've gone almost too much that I feel like we're anticipating the questions that we're going to be asked now. So maybe it's time to retire. I don't know. Just thinking about it. Never. Yeah, I know. Uh, but all of this means that finally, 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 the 90th Annual Academy Awards are almost upon us. They're this Sunday, March the 4th. Uh, voting came to a close last Tuesday, and now the winners are technically in the books or in the envelopes, hopefully in the right envelopes. <laughs> uh Ceremony will once again be hosted by Jimmy Kimmel, and I didn't actually know this, but it makes him the first person to host back-to-back ceremonies since Billy Crystal in 1997 and 1998. Can I just jump in? How do we feel about that? Because I was a little on his performance last year. Uh, Yeah, I didn't love him. I think it's kind of that ABC synergy because he's the host of that late-night show on ABC. But presenters, uh, in addition to those who have won in years past, except for there will be no Casey Affleck this year, uh, presenters will include Emily Blunt, Sandra Bullock, Dave Chappelle, Jane Fonda, Jodie Foster, Nicole Kidman, Rita Moreno is going to be there, uh, as well as Lupita Nyong'o, Christopher Walken. Uh, Musical guests, as is tradition, they will perform all the five nominated Best Song nominees. Uh, That includes Gail Garcia Bernal performing. Uh, What? Yeah, apparently he also sings... I unfortunately have not seen Coco. This is a weekend where I start feeling very uh, down on myself for, for doing other things during November and December. I still haven't seen Coco, but apparently he also is one of the singers in in the movie, and he performs Remember Me. Uh, tweet at me if I'm incorrect, please. Or just 
Uh, or someone tweeted Eric. <laughs> someone tweeted me <laughs> already. Please, I'm now saying false news just so that someone can tweet at me to correct me. I hope Gail Garcia Bernal tweets at you. There's nothing wrong with that guy. <laughs> Why nothing. not? Uh, Mary J. Blige will perform her nominated song Mighty River. Uh, Common, who's already an Oscar winner in this category for Selma three years ago, is going to perform Stand Up for Something from Marshall. Um, I always mess up the guy's name. From, call me by your name. Suf John. Suf John Stevens will be performing as well. Um, that'll be always pretty fun. Uh, one gentleman who will not be attending, though, will be Oscar-nominated producer Kareem Abid of Last Men in Aleppo. As Variety reports, Abid has been denied a visa to travel to the United States to attend on March the 4th, and Abid holds a Syrian passport and is currently living in Turkey. According to a letter from the U.S. consulate in Istanbul, his application was rejected under Section 212 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. President Donald Trump placed a travel ban on eight countries, including Syria, as we all know, so the producer, unfortunately, will not be attending. Uh, There have been some news items about others protesting by not attending as well. But the director's the director's coming, right? I believe, yes. Yeah. I believe he's still coming. And it is a front runner uh, for the Best Documentary Oscar, so that's good. However, there was a Best Foreign Film front runner last year that wound up winning uh, that did not have its director present. I'm talking about the salesman from Akhtar Faradi, who was also, this was like two or three weeks after that Trump travel ban made news last year. Um, he from Iran, so he would not be able to enter the U.S. under that travel ban. So he just protested and said, I'm not going to attend. Uh, and then the salesman, salesman did win the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film, kind of making a statement. Um, so unfortunately, it looks like that will may very well happen again. Variety also mentioned that over the past decade, only one major studio has won the Best Picture Oscar, Warner Brothers with Argo, while Fox Searchlight won three, Slumdog Millionaire, 12 Years a Slave, and Birdman. Now, that will most likely be the case again this year for Fox Searchlight. I think we're assuming The Shape of Water is going to take home Best Picture, maybe, right? 13 nominations, probably. I have no idea what's going to win. I've seen most of the movies, too, and I just still have no idea. Well, we reported a couple weeks ago that Every time a Best Picture nominee with Meryl Streep in it has been nominated, it has won. Nah, so the Post, Post is nominated. Oh, no, it hasn't gotten good not, reviews, no. but I don't know, track record. The Post has two nominations, and one of those is for Best Picture. That's crazy. Um, and as you're watching the Oscar ceremony, you may be curious as to which projects the nominated filmmakers have coming up next. Well, well, if you if you really can't slow down and hold your excitement, this is good for you. Academy Award nominee Dee Reese of Mudbound, her latest project will debut during the Oscars. Okay, so how's that for a quick turnaround? You go from nominated film to next project within minutes. <laughs> uh, it's a commercial airing during the ceremony as part of a collaboration between Walmart and Women in Film. Reese's commercial slash episode, if you will, is called The Box and follows Walmart's one single Rod Serling-esque guideline for the project. Nancy Myers and Melissa McCarthy will direct future installments as well. The guideline is, or question rather, is what happens when a Walmart delivery arrives in its bright blue box? Dun, dun, dun. That's, that's it. You go with that and you make a commercial that has to somewhat tie in with Walmart due to that premise, but that's about it. Uh, Reese took that start and made a short from it, and it's said to be science fiction in nature. Um, we'll see. I, I hope she wins Best Adapted Screenplay on Sunday night, and she takes us into the commercial break like a boss, and it just goes right into this short. Uh, it'd be a very interesting segue, and it's you know it's it's kind of neat that that's going to be happening on the same night. Pretty sure what's going to happen is there's going to be a severed head of a lover in the box, probably, with a receipt. Yeah, and they have to return <laughs> the head back, and then a different one comes. They'll be like, something? "What's in the box? What's in the box? Oh, this is not the severed head I ordered." That's true. Yeah. Mm, good guess. Good guess. I'm not going to place my bets on it, but I will place my bets on D. Reese doing something really interesting. Like I'm normally pretty skeptical about corporate America and its intentions, but I read about this too, and I read that she she had final cut, she could do whatever she wanted. The only mandate was that it had to answer that question. So I think it'll be kind of interesting. And the question is what's in the box, right? Yes. <laughs> that is kind of, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is interesting seeing filmmakers working in branded content, if you will, and how they can still make it their own. You know that Walmart logo is gonna be the last thing that you probably see, but it's kind of what's going on inside that project that's 
you know, commendable and what we're probably most excited about. But also fun that someone who's definitely been known as a dramatic director gets to, like, try out some sci-fi action that's paid for by Walmart. I mean, hey. You probably remember our reporting on how the Federal Communications Commission here in the U.S. repealed the 2015 laws designed to regulate Internet service providers and stop them from favoring some content or sites over others online. So now that the FCC's final order has been published, Congress has 60 legislative days from Tuesday to overturn it. So according to reports, the congressional review effort currently has 50 votes in the Senate, and therefore it only needs one more to pass. So if you're in the U.S. and you care about this issue, it is your last chance to reach out to your senators. Meanwhile, last week, Vimeo joined 22 states plus Washington, D.C. in a lawsuit against the FCC challenging the validity of its original repeal. So I thought this was an interesting quote from Vimeo's general counsel, Michael Che, not the guy from Saturday Night Live. He said, we can't risk our creators HD and 4K videos being slowed down by ISPs who might decide to favor their own content or charge for the service of delivering content they've already promised to deliver. So I commend Vimeo for sticking up for those of us who are making, uh, you know, independent content online. Finally, in headlines, we'd like to share a little appreciation of producer Benjamin Melnicker, who passed away this week at age 104. You may not know his name, but if you know us, you know that at least two-thirds of the Indie Film Weekly crew have a great appreciation of comic book films, and Mr. Melnicker played a big role in bringing these to the screen throughout his career. The former MGM exec for more than 30 years bought the movie rights to DC Comics' Batman in 1979 and has been credited on every single Batman-related film since. Unfortunately, even the lousy ones. So, rest in peace, Benjamin Melnicker. We hope you're up there with your favorite superheroes in the sky. I will say, even though I'm not a superhero guy, what I didn't realize he produced, which is a comic book, uh, is Swamp Thing from Wes Craven back in 1982 and then the Swamp Thing TV series, which I did grow up watching. Um, So I didn't even realize that that was a comic book character until I looked him up. And so I have seen a few, but... uh, Well, he also, at MGM, he oversaw production of some of the film titles that we cover the most on the site, like some of the Kubrick films, for example. And now here's Charles Hain with the gear news for the week. Thank you, John. So our biggest gear news this week is the Canon M50, or they probably call it the M50. So the Canon M50 is a brand new mirrorless camera from Canon. Uh, Canon is most famous for their mirrored cameras. I mean, obviously, the No Film School blog primarily started around the popularity of the Canon 5D Mark II, which has a mirror in it, but the mirror is heavy and it weighs more and it sort of gets in the way. Mirrorless camera designs have been super popular for the last few years. Uh, Panasonic with the GH5, Sony with all of theirs, Fujifilm because they're lighter weight. And for video work, you don't really need the mirror shutter and it's not really worth it. So Canon has always been sort of slow on mirrorless, but they're finally starting to take mirrorless seriously with the M50, which has 4K under $1,000. Now, this is their entry-level model coming in at $799 for just the body. So it's probably not going to win the competition like versus a GH5S or an A7S for people who are making their living shooting video every day. But it might win the battle for, like, when you get that email that's like, hey, I need to spend less than $1,000 on a camera. Like, where do I start? The M50 might be a real contender for that. It's a Canon. It's going to work with your EF mount lenses. It's also going to work with the newer EF-M mount, which is for mirrorless. Um, And you're going to be able to, like, develop all your skills, shooting some really nice stuff uh, without going over $1,000. But the really exciting thing is that it shows Canon finally willing to put 4K in affordable bodies. For a long time, even on the cinema line, 4K was only something like you had to get above $5,000 to get. With the 5D Mark III and the 5D Mark IV, 4K features have been getting down around three grand. but it's really nice for like an $800 camera to have 4K and that mirrorless is something Canon is going to get behind. Right now, I think this camera is probably more targeted at vloggers than it is at DPs. But so what? I bet we have a lot of vlogger listeners, and a lot of DPs should also be vlogging. And uh, I think, especially if you're trying to keep your budget really low, the new M50 is totally worth a look. What do you mean by vloggers? Is that like vloggers, or is that a different Vloggers. Am I supposed to say vloggers? I thought it was vloggers. Maybe I I don't know. I fully believe it's vloggers, and I've just never said it aloud. Yeah, I'm sure, because it's bloggers and vloggers, right? 
It is totally bloggers and vloggers. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate the call out on that one. No, that no is... problem. I was just wondering, I was like, vlog, is that some sort of like recording format? Or... No, you know what it is? It's entirely because I'm always talking about recording formats. Like F-log and C-log. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that is exactly why. Oh, and I think Panasonic's is vlog. I don't think it's P-log. I think it's vlog. So I think that's why I said vlogger. Very confusing. Yeah, mental ticks. So then, you know, if you had to compare this to one of Canon's uh, mirrored cameras, like one of the... Uh, T5i. The T5i. Or whatever the T5 has arrived at. It's probably the T12 or something now. I don't keep up with the T5i like I should, but they keep improving. It's the 6 or the 7. But it's it's sort of that range. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting, and actually we didn't talk about this in the article, is I wonder what's going to happen when the Magic Lantern folks get their hands on the M50. Why? Why is that well, interesting? Well, uh, Magic Lantern is a group of, I don't know if you call them hackers because they're sort of good people, but they <laughs> uh, they do a unapproved firmware for cameras. So, like, you could buy a Canon T5i and put in this unapproved firmware, which means you can never send it in for warranty repairs, but you would get basically the equivalent of a Canon 7D features hmm. in a T5i body for, like, half the price of a 7D. And Magic Lantern features coming to something like the Canon M50, it'll be really interesting to see what features exactly they are able to sort of squeeze in to an M50 that's not fully supported by Canon and is going to break your warranty, but might be worth it depending upon what kind of work you're doing. Up to you, listeners. (laughs) Yeah, totally. We do not recommend breaking your warranty. But people love Magic Lantern, and we have a lot of articles about it, and it's super popular. Um. On top of that release, Sony has released their new A7 III mirrorless camera. Uh, of course, that three should tell you that there was a two and originally just a plane. They usually don't do one for the first step, which tells you that Sony has obviously been taking mirrorless way more seriously than Canon has for a really long time, that they're on their third generation. Uh, the plain old A7 without the modifiers S or R is the entry-level unit in the line. So this is actually maybe somewhat equivalent to the M50, maybe a little fancier. Um, but this model has a whole host of improvements, including borrowing some autofocus features and burst shooting features from the top-of-the-line $4,200 A9 um, that are going to make it really interesting. Although, obviously, it's not going to have the 20-frame burst of the A9. It only has 10-frame burst, and it's not going to quite achieve the autofocus of the A9. But the autofocus on the A9 is insane. Uh, I went to an event that Sony had last year at the Red Bull Arena, and just shooting sports with it, it was just, like, always in focus. It was just crazy. I was like, I can't believe that I'm just, like, panning around watching a soccer game, and it's always... It, it was nuts. Uh, It's a real sign of the future. So those features rolling down to the affordable A7 is kind of cool. Although, again, I don't think it's going to be as powerful as the A9. Um, It has a full sensor 4K in a full-frame format, and it does uh, HLG HDR. HLG is the implementation of HDR. HDR is high dynamic range. That's the wide latitude, which is getting really popular. You probably see that advertised a lot in TVs if you're you're in a Best Buy buying CDs. And... um, What's interesting is that with Sony, the S line is the one that's pointed at filmmakers. So right now we have the A7R3 and the A7 III, which means that the A7S3 should be coming up next sometime early to middle of this year, maybe as late as third quarter, but hopefully this summer. And if it's able to bring the low light abilities of the A7S2, but some of the autofocus abilities of the A9 all together in one package, that is going to be a monster. So... Be on the lookout. Take a look at the A7 III right now if you're looking for the affordable entry-level version. But if you want the sort of like more targeted just-at-filmmakers version, play with the A7 III to get a sense of where we might be going with the A7S III, which will be coming out soon. Lastly, also on Sony News, Sigma has launched their art lenses for full-frame Sony E-mount. Now, one of the frustrations of the Sony line, especially the full-frame Sony e mount line is that while the bodies are super small and light, the lenses that are available that work with the full frame have always been kind of limited. Like you're pretty much stuck with mostly Sony made glass. And a lot of times they're a little heavier, which counterbalances all of the weight savings you got out of the body. Sigma bringing the full art line to the Sony platform, including two brand new lens designs, wouldn't really be news if they were just adding a new lens mount, like after all, people add new lens mounts all the time. They're like, ah, now we're an EF mount. We usually don't cover that as big news. However, not only are Sony shooters super thirsty for more options, 
The real news here is that Sigma has worked to customize their lenses for both the chromatic aberration correction that uh, Sony's built into the camera, but also they've put a lot of work into speeding up the autofocus system of the Sigma art lenses to work with the Sony autofocus system. Now, if this is really true, I can't wait to see a shootout between the A9 with Sony lenses and the A9 with Sigma lenses because the A9 with Sony lenses, like I said, that autofocus is like crack. So if this is coming close to that, but you're getting more affordability out of the Sigmas and you get the Sigma art look, which is a slightly different look than the Sony look, it maybe is a little creamier. Um, And that whole thing, but it works with the autofocus system and the insane speed of autofocus you get out of Sony, that will be a really appealing combo. And even if it's not quite there, anytime you're adding more choice to a platform, I think that's good for everybody. So do you think that we'll see the uh, A9's autofocus in the A7S III whenever it comes out? So I asked Sony about that uh, when I was at the thing. I was like, oh, my God, are we going to have this autofocus in the A7S? And they said because of the sacrifices they make to make the A7S so good in low light, um, the feature, like it's sensor-level technology that drives the autofocus in Sony. Mm -hmm. And so the sensor in the A9 is never going to be the sensor in the A7S because – they need that low light, which is what filmmakers love. Because still photographers are not as low light obsessed because they can always do a longer exposure. Mm-hmm. But since we got to shoot 24 frames a second, they're not a, like we need that low light ability. We need that high SIO in the sensor more than still photos do. Um, which means that the sensor design is a little different. And the Sony rep, who was a super nice guy uh, at the event last year, was saying – the autofocus tech is going to improve in the A7S III, but it will probably still not be quite A9 level uh, because they can't build that stuff into the sensor and also give us the 200,000 ISO usable footage that we love. So I think it'll be a big step over the A7S III, but I don't think it'll be full A9 territory. Copy. And now we'll move on to Ask No Film School. David Evans this week is the one who's asking a question, and he asks... A client has asked me to film on a roller coaster and is looking for advice for the best and safest ways to rig mini cams or GoPros to roller coasters. Uh, and then he gives examples of roller coasters, such as the Nemesis Inferno and Swarm at Thorpe Park. And he's trying to create a reverse POV shot. So uh, what do you think about that, Charles? Woo. First off, do you want to break? Can you break that down a little bit? I think so. It's maybe easier to for our listeners to understand the kind of shot that he's going for. So I think what he means by reverse POV shot is a close up of the person sitting in the roller coaster. Okay. So not a POV facing out, the reverse of the POV facing the person, which is actually something we've probably seen in every yeah roller coaster commercial Ad, yeah the, like the person their arms are waving in the air and they're screaming yeah. i think that that's what he means by reverse pov i'm assuming that's what he means by reverse pov yeah um thrilling question yes first off david thank you for including the name of your coaster <laughs> uh we looked it up uh, we looked at photos of it and ooh, this is gonna be hard this is not impossible but it's tricky so because i'm old I initially picked this question because I was picturing like a Coney Island style roller coaster where there's like cars and we were going to talk about like mounting to the car where, where people sit in it. But I don't know that roller coasters like that exist outside of Coney Island anymore. And the swarm at Thorpe Park is probably way more like most newer roller coasters. But it's basically it's like a bucket seat on an arm and like your legs wave free and your arms wave free. Mm-hmm. And you're like flying free in the air with like this mount that's basically like mounted at your butt. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be really hard rigging, Mr. Evans. It's not something that you do every day. So. The reason this is so hard, and I'm sure you've already thought about this, is safety. So normally when we mount a camera to something like a car or a ceiling, we're always like secure, 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 secure. Make it tight. Make it strong. Make sure there's multiple mounting points because the goal is to make sure like the camera never moves. It never like falls off the car. But if you're going up in that roller coaster and you rig the camera really securely with like Carlini clamps and straps and the whole thing, but you don't take into account like all of the twists and turns the unit makes and the possibility that it could hit another part of the coaster, you could potentially like really seriously injure your actors or break the coaster. So before I would do anything else, the first thing I would do is I would ask the client for an introduction to the park's engineer or safety officer. 
any sort of big organization like this will have someone in the regular engineering team for you to work with. And for liability reasons, you want to work with them from the beginning. You want to talk to them as you design your rig. And you want to ensure that whatever you rig up works with the coaster operations as the engineer understands it. Probably not bad to call your insurance company, too. Working with that person, you're going to want to explore whether you want to use clamps or suction cups. Um, they make extra song suction cups for camera mounts where there's like a little pump on the back or like a switch that makes them super strong. I've used some from like I think the company was called Shill where we put it on cars and the cars were moving like, you know, 20 or 30 miles an hour, not 70 miles an hour. And super strong, super durable. They are out there. They can do the job. Looking at the coaster you sent through, it looks like what you might want to do is like a Cardellini clamp on each side of the vest, which go out to like a little short arm to make like a little triangle rig with the GoPro or action cam in the middle pointing back at the actor. But you might want to consider suction cups for that on the flat part of the harness instead of Cardellini's just because, at least with suction cups, if there's any kind of like binding or accident, it's going to pop loose and fly away which again could be a projectile which might hurt someone but is better than like someone flying into the camera and the camera not moving because you've clamped it so tightly. This is again going to be a conversation you have with like the safety team and the engineer at the park. Um, you're going to want to pad the camera as much as you possibly can. You know, uh, we've all done that thing where you buy foam pool noodles or whatever and then you tape the pool noodles around it and you cut a little hole for the camera so that if there is any accidental bump or flying around, people are not like cut on the edge of your action camera. Um, this is a tricky shot. This is something that's going to require a lot of coordination between you, the client, your insurance, the safety officer. It's totally possible to do it, but you want to work as much as possible with the team of people available to make sure you're ending up in a situation where everybody, including the actor and the camera and the, the coaster, are safe. Also, if you're in a union, wouldn't be a bad idea to call your union safety officer. They might have some experience with that. Uh, excited to see what your results are. If you, if we got what your idea for a reverse POV is wrong, uh, let us know. And uh, the last thing is I'd probably, assuming they're going to let you, rig it once and run it with no one in it before you run. Like I wouldn't run it for the first time with someone sitting in the seat. I would like run it empty with the camera rigged up first to make sure it doesn't like bind or hit anything before you start putting people up there with it. All right, be super careful and good luck. Thanks, Charles. Since we just heard from Charles Hain, I want to mention that I gave a guest lecture to his students at the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema earlier this week about what they don't teach you at film school, and I want to give them a huge shout-out. These students were awesome and engaged, and many of them listened to the podcast, so hey. Uh, and I'm just really excited to see what they do in the film world. And maybe they will follow in the footsteps of some of the other filmmakers who have work coming out this week that you can all see and enjoy. For example... The Cured is coming to VOD on February 27th. It is not your typical zombie movie because instead of trying to kill the zombies, the protagonists are actually trying to cure them, hence the title. So basically, the disease that turns people into zombies has been cured, and now the once infected zombies are discriminated against by society and their own families, which causes social issues to arise and ultimately leads to militant government interference. It sounds um, kind of like a philosophical, political zombie movie that kind of turns the whole thing on its head. It's written and directed by David Frayne, who sat down to talk with our correspondent, Max Winter, about his subversive horror flick. And that interview is now up. We will link to it in the podcast post with everything else we're talking about. And by the way, the film stars Ellen Page and Sam Keeley. Premiering on Amazon Prime Instant on March 2nd is Brad's Status. This film premiered at TIFF last year, where it was nominated for the Platform Prize. It will now be debuting to the public via the streaming platform as an Amazon original movie. It written and directed by Mike White, and he earned a Gotham Award nomination for his screenwriting efforts. Ben Stiller plays a father who takes his son to tour colleges on the East Coast and meets up with an old friend who makes him feel inferior about his life's choices. It also stars Austin Abrams, Jenna Fisher, Michael Sheen, and Jermaine Clement. I, I will mention about this one. My old friend from MTV has a really funny, um, good filmmaking podcast called Happy, Sad, Confused, where he interviews all the you know big actors from these films. And when he did his top 10 list of films from last year, he included Brad's status with you know a bunch of other titles that you've probably heard more about. So that intrigued me. I, I want to see this one. And coming to Netflix on March 1st is the sci-fi movie Moon. 
While last week I made it a point to mention Duncan Jones's new Netflix movie, Mute, I should follow up by saying that it wasn't received very well critically. It's only sitting at an 8% at Rotten Tomatoes right now. So to those of you who watched it and didn't enjoy it, you can at least now catch his debut, Moon, on Netflix this week. This one is definitely an excellent piece of science fiction. It's got some serious HAL 9000 vibes. In it, astronaut Sam Bell has a quintessentially personal encounter toward the end of his three-year stint on the moon, where he, working alongside his computer Gertie, sends back to Earth parcels of a resource that has helped diminish our planet's power problems. Sam Rockwell gives a typically brilliant performance as the isolated astronaut. And coming to theaters on March 2nd is the film Foxtrot. This is a film that slipped under a lot of people's radars this year, but many critics consider it to be one of the best of the year. It's also had its fair share of controversy. Because Foxtrot depicts the Israeli Defense Forces covering up of a shooting of four Arab youths, it was denounced by Israel's Minister of Culture, Miri Regev, am I pronouncing that right? after it won the Grand Jury Prize at Venice. Regev referred to the film as, quote, the result of self-flagellation and cooperation with the anti-Israel narrative. In response, lead actor Lior Ashkenazi said, Israel isn't mentioned in the film, and there's no mention of the IDF either, but Miri Regev doesn't know that because she won't see the film. The film's director, Samuel Maouz, said, If I criticize the place I live, I do it because I worry. I do it because I want to protect it. I do it from love. Not to be outdone, in a follow-up statement, Rejev said it was, quote, outrageous that Israeli artists contribute to the incitement of the young generation against the most moral army in the world by spreading lies in the form of art. Some pretty heavy shit. The film went on to sweep the awards of the Israeli Film Academy anyway, winning Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Art Direction, Best Music, and Best Sound. It tells the story of a troubled family that must face the facts when something goes terribly wrong at their son's desolate military post. It's apparently got one of the best dancing scenes of the year, too, is what I hear. That was on, uh, someone put that on our best scenes of 2017 list, actually. I'm forgetting who that was now, but that clip is available on the post where at the border, if you will, someone comes out and does this foxtrot dance. And now moving on to some grant deadlines. There's a bunch of them this week. We might as well call it IFP Grant Deadline Week. But first, the ITVS Digital Open Call has a deadline on March 2nd. They're looking for fiction, nonfiction, linear, transmedia, or other kinds of digital series that are still in pre-production. And they can provide up to $30,000 in research and development funding to help you take your original digital content idea to the pilot stage for distribution on public media. And our friends over at SF Film, formerly the San Francisco Film Society, have yet another great grant opportunity with a deadline on March 5th. This is a new one. It's called the Vulcan Productions Environmental Fellowship, and it offers you $25,000 plus an advisor, travel to San Francisco and Seattle, and more to explore an important environmental or conservation story that needs to be told via documentary. And on Monday, March 5th, my uh, former employer, Alma Mater, IFP, has a couple of deadlines coming up. Um, See, that's what we did there. We used to party until the Oscars, and then the day after, we get down to business with deadlines. The IFP Filmmaker Lab documentary section, uh, the deadline is Monday, March 5th. If you have a rough cut for your first film, you can apply to be a part of the illustrious IFP Lab for a year-long mentorship program presented by the Time Warner Foundation. The IFP Filmmaker Labs ensure that talented, emerging voices receive the support, resources, and industry exposure necessary to complete, market, and distribute their first feature. They focus exclusively on low-budget features, and it's a very highly immersive program that provides filmmakers with the technical, creative, and strategic tools necessary to launch their films and their careers as well. It's very career-building, career-oriented. It goes beyond just a first feature. It's open to all first-time feature documentary directors with films in post-production. If you have 40 minutes or so of a rough cut, and that might be enough, you'd probably just email the staff on a case-by-case basis. Um, Not to be left aside, though, for you fiction filmmakers, the deadline for the narrative labs are also on March 5th. So if you're working on your first feature with a budget under $1 million, then you can apply for the narrative section of this as well. We mentioned Dee Rees. Uh, She went through the labs with Pariah back in 2008 or 2009, I believe. Uh, So it's a really cool program. 
And finally, also March 5th, there are going to be so many emails and applications coming in on Monday. Uh, shout out to them. Uh, is the Screen Forward Lab at IFP. And that is for the TV web episodic-based section of the labs. So that could incorporate interactive storytelling or even app-based work. Uh, IFP is looking for 10 innovative creators with fiction and nonfiction serialized projects. After participating in this year-long program, Screen Forward Labs alumni have gone on to find partners and executive producers, connect with production companies, work in top writers' rooms, self-launch and build audiences, win awards, have their project acquired for development by television, and even digital companies. So that was one that I think was formed in 2015, 2016, and the lab is kind of building as the landscape kind of builds, and we learn more about what is seen as success in the digital landscape in terms of distribution and your return on investment and things of that nature. So those are all due on March the 5th. So we've got one festival deadline to share with you this week, but it is a good one. If you've been listening to this podcast over the years, you know that one of my favorite fests of the year is the Camden International Film Festival. Uh, it has a deadline of March 14th. It's That's the early bird deadline, so you have a little while. This one takes place in beautiful Camden, Maine, from September 13th to 16th this year. It's known as one of the top documentary film festivals in the world. It showcases over 80 doc feature and short films from around the globe, and it's an Academy Award qualifying festival. But even more importantly, it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. When you think about festivals, you think about which ones you might actually want to attend with your film. And this is one that's worth applying to because actually going there is such a special experience and it happens in this beautiful small town and because they also have a concurrent points north forum with industry workshops and a big pitching session there are all kinds of uh really high high end decision makers and industry professionals there who you can network in a sort of very intimate setting where there aren't that many other people around uh, besides people who are there for the film festival so great opportunity i definitely encourage everyone to apply and now moving on to our whoa, 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 otherwise known as weekly <laughs> gonna, words of wisdom. Read the transcript for the podcast and see how that comes out. <laughs> WW. For the World Wide Web. I mean, what? <laughs> the weekly words of wisdom is what I'm talking about. And one, I'm going to start. One of the amazing things about interviewing filmmakers uh, right as their films premiere, as we often do at festivals, is that they're so fresh and excited and they haven't talked about it to death yet. But it also means that we're like talking to them when they're still kind of shell-shocked from production, like they've just come out of a cave after winter hibernation and are getting used to the light. Isn't that very Emily Booter-esque of me? Anyway, this was the case when I interviewed one of my favorite filmmakers, Josephine Decker, at Sundance this year for her film Madeline's Madeline. So for this film, uh, she devised the script over eight months of workshopping with a group of actors in New York. And in our interview, she was pretty candid about basically what a bad process it was, in her words. Rather than sharing a specific piece of advice, I'm going to point you to the article, uh, the interview that I wrote with her, um, which will be linked to in the podcast post, because I think a lot of you will be able to kind of relate to what she went through. She's like pretty raw about all the things she might have done differently, which I think can be just as instructive as what went well. Uh, and also, I think you'll find some comfort in someone being honest about the challenges they had, even when the final product ultimately premiered at Sundance. So we'll link to it. Check it out. True story. I enjoy reading interviews about films and other forms of art that I have yet to see. I, I kind of like that. Some people will only read an interview or a review after they see a movie. I kind of don't mind spoilers and things like that. So I enjoy reading some beforehand. This is all to say that uh, this week we posted an interview with a Black Panther costume designer. Yes, we get to talk about Black Panther. Well, in a, in a way, in a way we do. So with uh, two-time Oscar nominee Ruth E. Carter. And while I haven't seen the film yet, I learned a lot, which is something I try to do as little as possible. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but it was very informative to me. As our own Darren James recalls in his piece, when T'Challa sees his mother, played by Angela Bassett, for the first time, she's wearing an intricate white ensemble that was actually 3D printed. The Zulu-inspired headpiece was perfectly cylindrical, and the shoulder mount came from English designer Gareth Pugh. Carter worked with UCLA professor Julia Corner, who specializes in wearable art, to nail down the designs. It's a difficult process to get right, admits Carter. We learned a lot about algorithms and how you transform design onto the computer, and then how that information is used to further develop the costumes. Sometimes it comes out broken, so you have to start all over again. 
It was a wonderful process, and it was like opening up presents on Christmas when we got it right. Uh, Carter has been working professionally as a costume designer for over 30 years now, since uh, Spike Lee's school days in 1988, and then Do the Right Thing. And she was actually nominated for an Oscar for the costume designs for Malcolm X and Steven Spielberg's Amistad. Uh, And it was interesting to hear how she gets inspiration from real-life objects and real-life history, and is as much on this film as in as much of an anthropologist as she is a costume designer. So it's kind of interesting. You know, we always say what you bring to the table affects your work and uh, helps create your work. And for something like this, to kind of go back to African history and learn a lot more about actual cultural costumes and outfits, you may just subtly, subconsciously feel that when you're watching the film. So I thought that was interesting. And if you haven't listened to Oakley Anderson Moore's podcast from Sundance that we released earlier this week on Shorts, then I'm going to say you're truly missing out. Pete Lee, who came to the festival with the short Don't Be a Hero, showed a great story about how his friend Boots Riley, who made the feature Sorry to Bother You, which was also premiering at Sundance, convinced him to finally get over his fear of making a film. And here's an excerpt. Take a listen. He used to hang out a lot. And I remember like the day when Boots decided that he was going to shoot his feature, Sorry mm-hmm. to Bother You. He's going to direct it as opposed to just be a writer on it. And uh, and then from that point on, he would just show up at uh, the little warehouse that I used to run uh, or help run and with like all kinds of really insane questions about cinema. Can we put a lens this way? What do we CGI half of a sh- frame and use a different lens? Like any question. <laughs> like, and, and it was insane. I remember one night I was sick. I was like, I was moody. And I remember just telling him like, Hey, maybe, maybe you're not ready. Maybe somebody else will produce this. And he's never, he's always been the chillest dude, but he snapped at me that night and he <laughs> said, oh, you don't think I, I have doubts like in my own mind? You don't think I have enough people doubting me? Like I, I came to you for a question uh, and if you don't want to help me, don't help me. Like why are you going to join that? Um, and then he hung up and then he called back and he goes, I think the reason you're telling me to not do this is because you're afraid to do your own film. Mm. Uh, so why Ooh, don't we burn. both, why don't we both do our movies? So that way we'll both have a movie instead of neither of us having a That's movie. That's awesome. So yeah. it's like a relief that, you know, we're here at the same time. But yeah. I think those are the two people, a, a little brother and a big brother, both like sandwiching me and putting fire under my ass. So like <laughs> that was how this got made. Yeah, great job, Oakley. Shout out to you if you're listening. Do you have any more shout outs, Liz? Yeah, call, you love shout outs. O- Oakley, call us now. We're live. We're waiting by the phone. This is a big week for shout outs. I actually had even more shout outs, but I cut it down for you, John. Thank uh, you. <laughs> in case you missed it, though, RuPaul is having a moment in the independent film world. <laughs> shout outs to RuPaul. Shout out. I know that RuPaul listens um, for a fact. Sundance this year did a big retrospective of 10 years of his groundbreaking show, RuPaul's Drag Race, and he also served as the soldier for Sundance's inaugural Next Innovator Award. So now there's a Kickstarter going on for a documentary by Emily Branham, a friend of No Film School who's been working on this film for 12 years called Being Bibi, about a drag performer from Cameroon, Bibi Zahara Benet, who happens to have been the first winner of RuPaul's Drag Race and is on the All-Star season this year. I'm mentioning it because, first of all, we always get excited when these long, long, long-term projects near completion, and this is a Kickstarter for finishing funds. And by the way, if you're into this stuff, there are some pretty sweet perks related to the whole RuPaul drag scene, which is a thing. Uh, But I'm also mentioning it because they're doing a Kickstarter live event, which you might want to watch and see how it's done if you're thinking of running a Kickstarter campaign. So theirs will be on their page, and it's with this performer, Bibi, on Tuesday, March 6th at 9 p.m. Eastern, where Bibi will personally answer questions submitted in advance via social media and Reddit. I did a Kickstarter live event. Did anyone watch <laughs> it besides was your the mom? Stupidest thing ever. Um, my producer watched, and he just kept asking us really terrible questions, and only I think fifteen people tuned in. <laughs> so, and we'd already completed. We were gonna we were, we were gonna do it as like a strategy for like a last minute push uh, to get like whatever funds we didn't have, and then by the time we were gonna do it, we'd already accomplished our goal. So it kind of just became a stupid thing where we were drinking and answering our producers uh terrible questions like who is our biggest celebrity crush when 
we were like 15 and stuff. I don't know, dumb, dumb stuff. If only you were a famous drag performer. But actually, I think that's that's an important lesson, you know, for people listening. Like, if you're going to do a Kickstarter live, be strategic. Who's the sort of most, you know, known person involved with your production that like strangers might actually want to ask them questions? No offense, John. No, I, I mean, lots of, fif- you know, 15 people is kind of a lot of people. It's 15 more than none. That's true. Also, a quick little announcement from us. We are moving offices, and the reason I mention it is because we are currently in this wacky space that we've mentioned before. We've been here a couple years at uh, 33 Flatbush in downtown Brooklyn, and it comes equipped with this uh, excellent podcasting booth that was built by Gimlet Media. And the floor, partly because we're leaving and partly because uh, others have shifted, is looking for tenants, looking for people who need office space. So if you want to be right in downtown Brooklyn, um, have a shared office space space with some really interesting people um, in a big building full of creatives, definitely uh, just shoot me an email or shoot us an email, editor at nofilmschool.com, and we'll hook you up with the info. Or tweet at Eric. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're not saying where we're going. We're, you know, we may be looking for a space if you have an empty truck or a alleyway or something. We don't, we don't know. Eric, we have a space. That's not true. Oh, we do. Have, you guys didn't tell me we had a space. <laughs> oh my god! Now I'm understanding how this is working out. If oh, you okay. have a place for Eric to live, I had no. I was going to be Macaulay Culkin <laughs> showing up here on, on, you know, whatever day that is, and then Christmas. My parents have left. Yeah, it's just like Christmas all over again. Anyways, oh. all right. Next week on the podcast <laughs> on Monday, uh, will it's going to be all about the '80s revival, uh, which, if you haven't noticed, is quite popular these days. I sat down at Sundance with the directing team behind the film Turbo Kid, who returned to the festival this year with the movie Summer of '84. Interestingly enough, they're not a directing duo, but a directing trio, which I've never heard of before, and they're all Canadian. So maybe it's a Canadian thing. You're going to have to listen to find out. What's love got to do with a little menage, my friend Biggie Smalls used to say? Well, it's a partially a brother-sister team. So that's <laughs> oh, kind of a weird comment to make, Liz. I don't know what you're into these Well, days. as our fellow Canadian Celine Dion used to say, um, no. <laughs> your heart will your go heart on. Will go your, on. Heart will, your heart will go on, yes. See? See, John, your heart will go on. Anyways, we get into why shows like Stranger Things are so popular nowadays, and if you're working on a project like that, like I actually might happen to be, we talk about how to use uh, nostalgia successfully in your film. So it's going to be good. Wait, now I'm so intrigued. Now we've, yeah. Can we not say it on air? Uh, what on air? What you're working on. Oh, yeah. No, let's not say it yet. Let me finish my first project. But something to always keep in mind is while you're working on one project, always be working on another project, too. So So hard to do, but so so important. I feel about relationships that way as well. (laughs) You know? When you're in one, just just always, you never know if it's going to work out. So So tweet at Eric Lures if you're interested in being his back burner babe. (laughs) There's going to be a new show. about dating advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with me. Yeah, no, I'm the one to give it to you guys. So just oh. tune in. You and John both. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, quite the pair. Combined, we'll have 20 Kickstarter followers. Casanova's. Watching us. Thank you. So, anyhow, <laughs> I don't really know where to go from there except to say, please do tweet at us, especially Eric. <laughs> we fucking love tweets. At this point. <laughs> No, actually, I've been getting some really nice tweets. I love you, Twitter people. It's like you're you're changing my whole perception of the landscape. Twitter's like currency, you know? It's not. Anyway, I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. <laughs> I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. We're hey, all... Liz never did it. Yeah, she I didn't weird. do it. Oh, that's my Eric God. Hey. I was so confused. I was like, what? did I do it wrong now? All right. I failed well, in that's my it. duties. Maybe we let it go. No, nope, never. It's over. We're not doing it again. Finish the show, Liz. So I was saying we're all at No Film School. We're also at nofilmschool.com where you can get new articles about the craft of filmmaking every single day. And we hope you'll check out the podcast on iTunes or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We love to have more subscriptions and regular listeners. And of course, those five-star reviews really help us out a lot. So we appreciate it very much. And in the meantime, we will see you next Thursday. Thursday.